Welcome to the City Age podcast, sponsored by UVic's Peter B. Gustafson School of Business. I'm Alon Markovich, and this is our first episode of 2024. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Lisa Chamberlain, from the Center for Urban Transformation at the World Economic Forum. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Alon. How are you? Excellent. I'm really excited about today's episode. Today, our guest is Chris Castro, Chief of Staff at State and Community Energy Programs, a brand new office of the U.S. Department of Energy. Lisa, maybe you can just tell us a bit about Chris before the interview. Chris is in Washington, D.C. now, having come from Orlando. He's had a fascinating career, an extensive background for such a youngish man, and he really does bring an entrepreneurial spirit to government, which I find very exciting. Since high school, in fact, he's been starting businesses and working hands-on in all things sustainability. And this is what attracted the DOE to contact him about heading up this new office. It's kind of inspiring. I don't know if it was just me, but even the fact that they went to someone, they didn't pull from academia, they didn't pull from R&D, they pulled from someone who's been living and breathing this on the street. I was even inspired by that, that they pulled Chris into this world. So you know you're getting someone who's tried, tested, and true. Particularly charming is the fact that it was a snow day in D.C. when we were talking, and we get a guest appearance from his youngest kid. So you'll hear a little bit of that in the background. Here is Lisa's conversation with the ever-active, never-standing-still Chris Castro. Chris Castro, welcome to the City Age podcast. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to the discussion today. How did you become so intensely involved in sustainability issues, and where does your incredible energy and drive come from? Well, you know, I'm fortunate that early on, my parents really focused on embracing the outdoors, and so growing up, I I didn't really understand the importance of it, but but over time, after reflecting in hindsight. I think a lot of my passion and drive comes from my upbringing in, you know, snorkeling the, the Florida Keys and surfing the East Coast of Florida up and down the coast and 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 really, you know, exploring the, the Florida Everglades, which I got to do a significant amount of times. And so I think those experiences were foundational for me. Right. But my journey really didn't kick off until 2007. I was an undeclared sophomore at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. And that's where I stumbled into actually an environmental sociology course, an intro course led by Dr. Penelope Canan. Um, Dr. Canan is actually a, a major mentor of mine. She's a renowned uh, sociologist, and um, I was fortunate to land in her class. And it was in that course when we started to dive into the impacts that humanity has had on our planetary boundaries, right? The climate, the biodiversity, the ozone, et cetera. And I remember viscerally getting having this aha moment when we started to get introduced to the extractive industries of fossil fuels and not just the impacts, but essentially the opportunities ahead to make a transition to a sustainable energy future, one that's cleaner, healthier, more reliable, resilient, and affordable. And so following that class, my life completely transformed. Um, and it was then when I realized that my passion and purpose was doing everything in my power to make this switch to a sustainable future. And this led me down uh, over a dozen different experiences in, in committing over the last 16 years. So I started as a student organizer, passing a climate referendum on my university, getting them to commit to carbon neutrality by 2050, which was a success. 
And in 2008, I founded a student organization called IDEAS, stands for Intellectual Decisions on Environmental Awareness Solutions. And 15 years later, that organization has grown into an international UN accredited NGO implementing sustainability action projects and solutions in over 30 countries, hundreds of communities worldwide. And it's really focused on these sustainable development goals, right? The SDGs, these 17 global goals. That organization still thrives today. In 2009 and 10, interestingly enough, I was selected for a two-year work study at the DOE. Um, And so I came up to DC over those two summers, leveraging this undergraduate research project because I started to get really interested in advanced biofuels and and these, uh, you know, what the renewable energy transition looks like. And I started to focus in on how algae could be a source of advanced biofuels by sequestering point source emissions from places like power plants and industrial factories. And that led me to this two-year work study. So I got this great experience. And actually, I came and in 2011, I graduated in 2012. In 2011, I decided to launch a clean energy consulting firm called Citizen Energy. It operates still in D.C., uh, metro and parts of California, and it drives clean energy solutions in commercial and multifamily buildings. So I wanted to take my experience and actually drive in the built environment a lot of these retrofits because we know that buildings in cities happen to be one of the greatest uh, sources of greenhouse gas emissions. And so I'm, I'm doing that work. And all of a sudden in 2013, outside of my work hours, um, I continue moving these entrepreneurial efforts forward. And I launched uh, what's called fleet farming. It's actually a around urban farming program, turning neighborhoods into agrihoods and teaching everyday people on how to grow healthy, organic, nutritious food still operating today. And that same year, later that year, get contacted by the mayor's office of the city of Orlando. And I'm doing this nonprofit work. I'm trying to drive my consulting firm and I'm doing I'm doing the work in Orlando as one of the main people, you know, driving it forward. And sure enough, Orlando Mayor Buddy Dyer contacts me and ends up selecting me for a position in in the city, later being promoted to being the director of sustainability and resilience in 2016. So I spent a good part of the decade uh, of this past decade actually working on the ground in local government, driving this stuff forward. And I will say, lastly, in 2020, I was part of the founding team to launch Climate First Bank, the first B Corp FDIC insured bank whose mission is to actually be a force for good for the climate and actually leverage our collective deposits in these banks to accelerate climate and clean energy solutions. So, you know, I've given the last 16 years of applying my time, talents and treasures to making this transition a reality from community to nonprofit to private sector to government. And I I can't be more excited in the moment that we're in right now, given the resources that have started to flow. So one of the things that you said to me in our prep interview was that you bring this entrepreneurial spirit to government, and it's very much needed. But I'll also say that I was unaware of how progressive Orlando is around sustainability issues. You you made a lot of really interesting progress there, um, particularly around you know retrofitting government facilities to make them more energy efficient. Give us a few of your wins with the city of Orlando. Well, listen, local governments in general have been on the front lines of some of the most pressing issues of our time, from affordable housing to homelessness to addressing the climate crisis and advancing sustainable cities, right? Cities and local governments are where the rubber meets the road. And I've really witnessed that 
uh, in the city over the last decade. You know, as mentioned in 2013, I was honored to get this appointment. Um, and I, at first I was hired to really develop the city's clean energy strategy. And that evolved into a broad based sustainability and resilience role. It looked at not just you know, mobility and buildings and power gym, but also local food and water and zero waste initiatives and livability and natural systems. So it really was the gamut of what it takes to create a transformation in a community, one that drives healthier outcomes, right? And so I think that there's, you know, a number of takeaways that I gathered from that in terms of what it makes, uh, what makes kind of this stuff work in a city. Uh, you know, how do we drive this forward um, at the local government level? And first and foremost, I think it starts with political will. Mayor Dyer set these bold visions for accelerating these science-based emissions targets. We wanted to hit 100% clean energy transition. And most importantly, supporting a sustainability office and a team that, quite frankly, is dedicated to advancing this mission every single day. Uh, you know, and it, what's exciting is you have this network like the Urban Sustainability Directors Network that's now made up of hundreds and hundreds of cities across the country, uh, USDN for short, that essentially are these sustainability offices. And oh my gosh, the explosion of these roles and the importance of them over the last decade has just been phenomenal and it continues to grow, right? So political will was something I realized was critical. But it's not just that. It's also in educating our staff. We worked on training the city staff to understand how they are critical pieces to this puzzle and hitting these goals. And it was everyone from police and fire to public works to parks. We even launched the Greenworks Academy, getting a rep from every department in the city and going through a deep eight-month academy, essentially, to learn how their roles contribute to this mission, right? Build the culture. Um, community engagement and the involvement of participatory governance is another key factor. And not only did Orlando have a community advisory board for sustainability, but also works very closely with a coalition of nonprofits like NAACP and League of Women Voters and Ideas for Us and, and other community-based organizations like neighborhood associations and the like. And, and I think that too often we forget that the in community engagement is a piece that cities don't feel they play a role in, but it is essential to advancing often these big, bold goals. Sorry. One last thing is, I think, collaboration and partnerships. In Orlando, you know, our charge became to not just implement it within our jurisdiction, but expand and replicate our successes across Central Florida and the region. And and because, of course, we know climate and these environmental issues have no borders and, and we need everyone to participate. So we worked with our regional planning council and regional and created a, a regional resilience collaborative, which we call it the R2C. And it, it brings together multi-stakeholder representatives to develop shared goals and strategies in advancing resilience and sustainability, including, you know, county and, and sister cities, utilities, universities, place-based foundations and philanthropy, the transit agency, right? And and many, many more. So I think ultimately, I will say the business chamber and the private industry as well being key stakeholders. So, you know, one thing I'll take away on this question is former Governor Martin O'Malley from, from Maryland one time told me that progress moves at the speed of trust and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I, that really stuck with me. And I, I will say that certainly rang true in my lived experience leading the work in Orlando for, for nearly a decade. And today, Orlando has one of the largest, most robust EV charging networks 
in the country outside of yes. the West Coast, which I did not know that. Yes. Not only fastest growing EV network, but largest adopt, you know, adoption of EVs on the East Coast. I mean, it's really becoming uh, a, a kind of a model for how cities can prepare for this inevitable transition from a codes perspective, from incentives, even investing public dollars in, in expanding EV infrastructure at parks and neighborhood centers and, of course, our parking garages. So cities that want to expand their EV network should be taking a look at Orlando, apparently. Yes, we even have a great EV roadmap that they could step-by-step uh, step follow. Oh, fantastic. So you're in Orlando and you get recruited to become the first chief of staff to a new office at the Department of Energy under Secretary Jennifer Granholm in the Biden administration. Did you feel like you were getting called up to the majors? How did this happen? <laughs> yeah. I mean, funny enough, I remember I was head down working diligently. This was like March of 2022. And uh, we're actually working on the EV readiness code for new construction, requiring all new construction to have a certain level of chargers and readiness for future chargers, right? And and I ended up receiving this email from the White House presidential personnel office. Wow. And at first, I'm completely caught off guard because this email said I was like, I was a finalist as this chief of staff position at the Department of Energy, and it wanted me to click this link to fill out a form. And as you know, for everybody who's gone through cybersecurity training these days, there's a lot of scammers out there. And, and <laughs> you're thinking it's, yeah, you're thinking it's some sort of like virus that's going to infect your computer. Exactly, a phishing email. I'm like, okay, this is phishing. I, you know, let me let me before you know let me maybe forward it to my CIO team. But before I did that, there was a number and a signature at the bottom of this email. I'm like, hmm, sure enough, let me let me give them a call. And it was the White House Presidential Personnel Office, and they said, if you're interested. You know, we want you to to sign up through that form and, and and start going through interviews. I did seven interviews up through the White House, up through the Department of Energy, all the way to the chief of staff at the DOE and, and essentially received an offer. And, you know, I think to your point, I did have kind of this pinch me moment when all of that settled in. It basically underscored that all of this hard work and entrepreneurial energy I've been putting into this work somehow got on the president's radar. And it has been an a unbelievable honor to serve our country in this role. And uh, my goodness, the mission space of what we're doing here is just unbelievable. Now, so tell us about what this new office is and how it's innovative within the Department of Energy. You're doing things that the Department of Energy has never done before. So tell us about that. That's absolutely true. I mean, uh, new and innovative is the name of the game at the Department of Energy. It's such an exciting place to be. It does feel like we're like almost in a startup uh, uh, community here at the DOE and everybody is all hands on deck. Um, as you all, you know, as you might know, the president and Congress have passed the most historic investments in climate and clean energy that we've ever seen around the world between the bipartisan infrastructure. I just want to stop you to say that one more time, because people do not understand what the Biden administration has done in this regard. So just 100 percent. Give us that one more time. President Biden and Congress have delivered in the most historic way to advance climate and clean energy that we've seen in the entire world. There's over $500 billion that have been made available to accelerate this transition. And that includes the funds from the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. And when you look at these three laws, it is quite frankly the, the recipe for an economic industrial transition to a clean energy future. And so out of the 500 billion, 
a hundred billion of that came to the Department of Energy. And that money came with this new mission tag around not research and development. I've learned that DOE for the last 45 years has primarily been an R&D agency, 17 national labs helping to get a lot of these technologies to the commercialized state that there are today, right? Heat pumps and solar and wind turbines and the like. And, And so now this 100 billion is focused on equitable deployment of clean energy. So now we're a research development demonstration and deployment agency. And that, that required a, a new thinking at the department. And so I got to give it to Secretary Granholm, who's an unbelievable leader. She really quickly realized that DOE was not organized and, and structured to be effective and efficient with deploying a hundred billion dollars to states and tribes and communities all over the country. And that we needed to realign how DOE was structured. And she did that. She created a new undersecretary for infrastructure. We call him S3. He's led uh, undersecretary David Crane, an incredible private sector climate hawk who has come into DOE and is, and is using his, his experience to kind of really accelerate this work. And so S3, this, this undersecretary was created. And then there are several new program offices under that pillar that is focused on this deployment of clean energy money. And it's and the beautiful thing is it's organized in some of the key aspects of what it will take to make this transition. First and foremost, we have the MESC office, Manufacturing and Energy Supply Chains. This is about onshoring critical minerals and supply chains and boosting domestic manufacturing of our clean energy technologies here in America. And it is amazing to see the renaissance that's happening uh, with manufacturing. There's over $200 billion of private sector investment on top of the money that we're contributing through MESC and, and other offices to drive this manufacturing. And it's battery plants, battery recycling facilities, solar PV, wind turbine parts, you name it. Across the board, uh, over 100 new manufacturing plants are being developed as we speak in America, and it is going to sustain and support our long-term sustainability of this transition. So that's critical, MESC. Secondly is the Grid Deployment Office, known as GDO for short. Grid Deployment Office is really solely focused on expanding and modernizing the electric grid. We are moving towards electrified transportation, electrified building systems. That's obviously adding more stress and load to the electric grid. And and we know that we need to modernize it. Yeah. So if the grid is not working, you can have all the renewable energy in the world and it's not going to do much for you. You got it. And so this office has billions of dollars being deployed to help add more transmission lines, add more local electric distribution facilities, upgrade substations, underground utilities, so that it's more resilient to the extreme weather and more, right? So that's GDO. Then we have this OSED office, Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. They're really the office that has the funding around the hydrogen hubs and the direct air capture and long duration storage. They're trying to get what's been lab scale demonstrations into real world scale demonstrations for clean energy, right? And so they're really focused on those technologies. And then lastly, but not least, it's SCEP, this Office of State and Community Energy Programs. And that's where you are chief of staff. Correct. That's where I sit. This is the office that I've been lifted up. I was actually employee number one for this office in July of 2022, a week before our director uh, came in. And, and, and so I've been helping to lift up this new federal programs office. We manage $16 billion of formula and competitive grants. And our mission is to partner with states, tribes, local governments, school districts, and other community partners 
to invest in these clean energy projects through these grants and also provide them technical assistance that can help them demystify the pathways to drive local economic development, create jobs, avoid legacy pollution, right? And, and ultimately uh, try to get to the least fortunate and the historically disadvantaged communities as the priority. So, so SCEP is uniquely focused in DOE as this technology agnostic office. We don't just push solar or EVs or building efficiency. Our goal is to meet these stakeholders where they are and develop and provide the tools as well as the funding to help them along their journey towards this net zero future, towards this clean energy future. And, and so that's the mission space of SCEP. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's get into some brass tacks here. There's very specific things that can help consumers today, mm-hmm. schools, homeowners, even renters. Tell us about how the programs that you're running are available for people to take advantage of right now. Excellent. So, um, you know, a lot of our funds within SCEP actually flow, flow through these institutions. These states, tribes, local governments, schools, even nonprofits have direct funding from SCEP. And in addition, SCEP manages one of the longest serving programs at DOE now called the Weatherization Assistance Program, the longest serving low income energy efficiency program across the country, goes to every county government in the United States and our territories. And, and the, the, so, so there are several different opportunities here for people to take advantage of. I do want to underscore the Inflation Reduction Act because this is the climate bill, again, back to President Biden and Congress that delivered. And, and this climate bill allows us to not only save energy and save money, but also save the planet all at the same time. And, and what has, what, what this has done is enabled historic tax credits and enabled consumer rebates to support clean, the clean energy transition. And what we've identified is just through the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, this will lead to a 40% reduction in the United States' greenhouse gas emissions compared to that 2005 level that we're, that we're tracking as the baseline. And that's a significant way to the 50% goal by 2030. So we're talking about this one law being a huge bite at the apple, but not the only thing. So as it relates to consumers, we got tax credits for things like rooftop solar, which bumped up to 30% of your investment and even added energy storage, heat pump technologies, insulation, and even other efficiency technologies that now you can get tax credits for. There's even new bonus tax credits that can add on top of that 30% for projects that are in energy communities that meet domestic content requirements and other incentives. And so you can actually see projects that can potentially stack up to 50, 60, 70% of the total project costs coming back to incentives if you're able to stack all of these different credits, right? And, and so the tax credits are such a big deal. There's even a new tax credit, by the way, for energy audits, which should lower or eliminate the, the barrier for homes and businesses to start to understand and manage their energy consumption by measuring and auditing themselves. Yeah, what, what is an, tell me what an energy audit is. So an energy audit is essentially like a diagnostic of your building that helps to identify the various systems that use energy, the envelope, the HVAC system, the lighting, the service hot water, and often the plug load or the appliances. And so you go through this building almost like a building doctor and you analyze uh, what technologies can, can actually have a, 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 an investment potential, right? That you can invest in and through the savings, pay off that investment over time. We'll be right back with more from Chris Castro. But first, 
we'd like to share a quick conversation I had with Cheryl Mitchell from the Peter B. Gustafson School of Business at the University of Victoria. Cheryl, thank you for joining us on the City Edge podcast. Why an MBA in sustainable innovation? What makes it different to other MBAs? How we're different is that we have the same MBA core concepts that you'd think about. How do you, in general, manage any kind of an organization? However, sustainability and how we deal with innovation is in every course that we offer. So from the very first day you join our, our program until the final day when you do your capstones, there isn't a moment that doesn't think about sustainability and innovation, and I might add in complexity. That's the difference. I think, you know, we're a small university and so we get to be nimble and we get to ask some questions and nudge business schools to say, imagine if every business school said we're all going to focus on sustainable in innovation. Maybe then we would be able to solve some of the very real problems we are facing globally. I think there's 16,000, don't quote me on this, plus business schools in the world. Imagine if at its core, everyone was saying it's about people, planet, and profit, and that we all tackle those wicked problems. Are there specific people this program is for? This program is for two kinds of people. The first kind of person is our idealist realist. That is a person who works in any industry, any organization, and believes in business and what and the work that they're doing, but they recognize there's an idealism about them. They want to change the world, and they understand that we've had a pandemic. We've got issues with human resources and globalization, and then, of course, we have the climate crisis, and that they know that things have to be looked at differently in order to solve problems. So that's my ideal ideal realist. And we get those from all sorts of industries, the military and the government and energy and resource industries and mining, forestry, oil and gas. And then we have our realist idealists. And those are folks who are oriented to, I want to change the world, but I recognize that I might have the very best chance of changing the world if I'm internal in an organization and I can go into these different organizations. I can work in finance, but look at impact investing, that I can be in an organization and I can be a sustainability manager so we can do things in a different way. By the way, those are two jobs that our students have gone out to get. So idealist, realist, and then a realist, idealist is where we start. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. We look forward to hearing more from you soon. Thanks so much. It was a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. For more on UVic's MBA in Sustainable Innovation, please visit uvic.ca slash MBA. And now back to Lisa's conversation with Chris Castro. In addition to the tax credits that have been enabled, we also have two other really important things in the IRA that you should be aware of. The first is what's called elective pay, which now enables tax-exempt entities like municipalities, universities, schools, hospitals, other nonprofits to actually monetize these incentives. As you can imagine, they don't; these entities don't pay taxes, right? So they don't take advantage of tax credits. But now, because of the IRA, these tax-exempt entities can actually receive cash in lieu of a tax credit for the same value of the credit. So if I'm city of Orlando and now I want to invest in more rooftop solar for my neighborhood centers and, 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 and parking garages, well, guess what? That investment can come back 30% of it if I invest in solar. And of course, those bonus credits count as well. This is one of the biggest opportunities that has been enabled for the next 10 years because it brings what has been a market in the dark 
now into the light. And it allows the private sector to now identify this, what we call the mush industry, municipal, university, schools, hospitals, kind of the tax exempt building market to take advantage of all of these great benefits um, who have, quite frankly, been in the dark for a long time. So that's elective pay. And then the last big opportunity is rebates, consumer rebates. This is where the rubber hits the road for consumers. There is $8.8 billion worth of rebates. And in fact, Congress wrote them so that the rebates are required to be provided at the point of sale and that low and moderate income households get more benefit, more incentive to make these upgrades, whether it is your air conditioning and heating system, whether it's your water heaters, whether it's your insulation and other energy systems. This is going to help reduce cost on households, and it's going to help improve the indoor environmental quality by decarbonizing those energy systems and moving towards electric. So Congress directed DOE essentially to work with the states to develop these rebate programs. That's an important point. Each state has to develop a plan on how they intend to use the money that they've been allocated to lift up a rebate program. And of course, this this is an amazing opportunity to create new business and financial models. The goal is not to just give out 8.8 billion and what we call swap boxes, but it's actually to transform the home improvements market to be more focused on these whole home and electrification improvements that provide significant quality of life and financial benefits to residents. So um, again, want to underscore these are state-run programs. Over the next year, DOE is working with each individual state and territory to develop those rebate programs so that they have so that they have consumer protections in place, so that they are trying to get to our Justice 40, our environmental justice communities. And um, that ultimately they're minimizing, you know, any waste or abuse from those dollars. And so we're over this year, we're going to be working to lift those programs up. And in the meantime, I want to point you all to a consumer savings hub website that we've created to kind of demystify the tax credits and the rebates that you might be available for. So I want you to go to energy.gov slash save, and, and that will take you to this kind of one-stop stop for consumers to kind of learn more about how you can take advantage of all of these great benefits. Awesome. So now let's talk about Renew America's Schools program. This is also a clean energy improvement program for K through 12 schools across the country. Yeah. It has really taken off is my understanding and I see from the list of awardees that some of the really big school systems like New York City and Los Angeles, you know, they have not availed themselves of this yet. Mm-hmm. So tell us how the program works and how schools that haven't already applied can do so in the future? Great question. And this is one of the most exciting programs for me because it's the first time in history that Department of Energy has funding for public schools across the country, the first time. And so the bill, the bipartisan infrastructure law, to your point, enabled $500 million to support school districts and local education agencies with funding to make energy efficiency and clean energy improvements. Ultimately, the goal, reduce costs for schools, enhance quality of life for, for and environmental quality for students and teachers, and ultimately unlock resources that could put, be better utilized to support education, right? Instead of giving money to our utilities, let's focus on investing that money into education and, you know, essentially retrofitting those schools to be more efficient. Now, as we were developing this program, Lisa, I was blown away to learn that schools are the second largest public infrastructure sector and has minimal historic federal investments to make these types of improvements. 
And based on a government accountability report that we read on schools, there's an $85 billion annual shortfall of maintenance and capital that's needed for school facilities. $85 billion. We got $500 million, right? So $500 million sounds huge, but it's really a drop in the bucket in, in, yeah. in, a drop in, the bucket in addressing the actual need. So from a program design, this goes into how we design the program. From a program design, knowing that we had these very limited funds compared to the need, we decided to go down a couple of different pathways, ultimately focused on how do we get to the least resourced, Title I, highest percentage free and reduced lunch, and or schools located in these historically disadvantaged communities, right? Our goal is ultimately to support the President's Justice 40 initiative of trying to get 40% of all of this new money to flow to these historically disadvantaged communities and make sure that the transition is not just a clean energy transition, but it's an equitable clean energy transition. So we did two things to make this equitable. One is for school districts that don't even have an energy manager, they've never gotten a federal grant to do building projects. We wanted to create a pathway for those public schools to seek on-site capacity, actually hire an energy manager with DOE funding And then we provide training to those school districts on how those energy managers can sustain that work into the future. How do you do an energy audit? How do you identify and prioritize the investments based on that audit? What are the financial tools that you can leverage to actually do those projects? So on and so forth. And so we selected 25 school districts as a pilot to do this across the the country. Secondly, we decided to take the the 500 million and actually break it up into four grant rounds. So school districts essentially could apply for funding to do these types of projects, not just capacity, but the actual project funding. And we launched the first round, uh, $85 million in spring of 2023, and we were completely blown away by the response. We had over a thousand concept papers, over 360 full applications, $6 billion in requests, And we only had 85 million, right? So that's 70 times as much as we had to offer. Wow. And we ended up combining two years of funding into one and giving out 178 million for this first round um, just because of that demand. How wild is that? The need is large. The need is large. So so there's a lot going on there. We were fortunate to be able to select the first 24 school districts to get funding. 23 are in Title I schools. 14 are in rural communities. Five are in tribal governments. So we really wanted to focus on those school districts that might not be always getting those funds and at the light of day, like maybe New York's or even Orlando's uh, school districts. We really wanted to focus on those in most need. And that's part of the program design here in SCEP to to address equity and justice in this work. There, there will need to be a lot of people to drive this energy transition, right? We need a massive effort in workforce development. And I feel like every time I talk to people in the energy transition world, it inevitably comes back to, you know, needing skilled workers. How is this being addressed? Do you, I mean, I don't know that DOE in particular is addressing it, but it must be something that you have thought about. You're absolutely right. You know, ultimately the transition to a sustainable energy future, we consider the greatest economic development, wealth creation, and job created opportunity of the 21st century. This is a massive transition, right? 80% of the current economy is powered by fossil fuels. And it's projected that the historic laws that were passed that we've been talking about are estimated to create over 9 million new jobs over the next 10 years. And uh, from those in clean energy, clean manufacturing, 
efficient buildings, environmental justice, natural infrastructure, clean transportation. You na- I mean, across the board, this is going to take an, an industrial economic strategy to pivot. So this is a really big deal. Now, in SCEP, we actually are privileged to manage $260 million worth of funding for workforce development programs. And there are really four of them, uh, and I'll quickly mention each. One is called TREC or Training Residential Energy Contractors. This is a, a formula grant that's flowing to all of the all 50 states and five territories. And ultimately, it's intended to create programs that can train small businesses and, and, and minority and women business-owned enterprises to be to learn how to properly install these new clean energy technologies. How do you install a heat pump? versus a heat pump water heater versus an electric resistance heat water heater. There's a different uh, skill set. In fact, the heat pump has refrigerants inside of it that the electric ship doesn't. And now we have to train these plumbers to handle refrigerants so that we don't have an unintended consequence. And that's just an example of the fact that we need to ensure that, you know, that not just big companies get this business, but that we are creating wealth opportunities uh, in these communities and and trying to target those that have been those minority populations um, to give them you know, real opportunity for success. So Trek is a great program and it's going to start to flow and help the rebates that I talked about earlier. Secondly, we have a whole grant on energy auditors and training energy auditors for residential and commercial buildings. We talked about energy audits earlier, and it is the foundational step to begin moving forward for clean energy, whether it's in your home or your building, right? We can't manage what we don't measure. And the energy audit helps you measure where the waste is, identify the potential improvements, look at the financial models of what it'll take to invest and the savings as a result, and then be able to do a project. So energy auditors, critical for all of this stuff we've been talking about. Third, is uh, career skills training. We are excited about this grant because nonprofits are eligible entities to directly receive this funding. Uh, and, and the whole idea is to get labor and uh, industry to partner on on-the-job apprenticeship programs in the building technology space. So how do we actually get new apprenticeship programs to train people on how to do weatherization, on how to do uh, installation of heat pumps and the electrification systems, so on and so forth. But the cool thing is create partnerships between unions and labor and private sector and nonprofits to come together uh, and actually move that forward. And and we're excited to see what those grants are going to do. And the last one is focused on universities and, and colleges. It's called Building Training and Assessment Centers. And we're excited that we made an announcement of these uh, in the fall of last year and ultimately are funding these new centers at universities to train students on how essentially to do energy audits and uh, for commercial and multifamily buildings, as well as industrial facilities uh, like manufacturing plants and, and the like. And so now we're starting to build the capabilities at our universities to train the next generation of the clean energy workforce. And so it's really trying to come at this from from all all angles. Definitely from lots of different angles. Um, so I wanted to just ask you kind of bigger, a couple of bigger picture questions. And one of them is you were in city government and then you got this big bump up to, you know, the Department of Energy. What have you learned about government, how it works and what I perceive as the disconnect between what government is trying to do and how the public is per- perceives the government and what it's trying to do. 
Yeah, I think that the the perception is with all of this investment that the government is trying to like own the clean energy transition. And what what Secretary Granholm and our leadership have been very clear about is that this is a government enabled but private sector led transition. We need trillions of dollars to enter the the economy to make this transition a reality and actually hit the the climate and clean energy goals, right? Hit the 50% reduction in emissions by 2030, hit the net zero target by 2050 or sooner, and hit 100% electric grid by 2035 in order to do that. Those are the North Star goals we have at the department. And you know what government does well is help to enable these new markets. Uh, it does well in investing in research and innovation to get technologies from the fringes in the labs out into the field and and fully commercialized. Um, and I think it does a you know a really good job at trying to set the stage for where our economy needs to go to truly sustain it and achieve all of these you know broad based environmental and climate goals. Um, but I think it's really important to underscore that this is a government enabled kind of uh, down payment to the overall private sector led transition that we're going to need to make. There's no way that the government can fully fund this transition on our own, which is why market transformation is such a key mission of ours to to try to create new business models, to try to create new financing models or new utility partnerships that ultimately make electrification and efficiency, the standard and the norm um, moving forward. And, and so that's, that's a little bit about kind of where I, you know, what I've gathered from this, from this role. So, and tell me a little bit about your communication strategy to the extent that you have any control over that. But in terms of, I think one of the things that we need to hear more about, particularly younger people who I think are feeling frustrated by slow progress and, and pessimism, Mm -hmm. how can, what is your strategy for reaching your own cohort and people who are maybe a little bit younger than you? Yeah, there's no doubt that the need for us to elevate the impact stories of how all of this investment is impacting the lives of the American public is essential. Uh, We need to do a better job demystifying how all of this great, you know, all of these great resources are actually lowering our cost, are actually, you know, driving new job creations, are bringing new industries into communities to help them transition. And I do think that the younger generations are very excited about um, the opportunities ahead with the transition to a sustainable energy future. And, um, and so our communication strategy, especially over the coming year, is going to be really ramping up the storytelling of our states, our tribal governments, the local governments, the schools, you know, receiving all of these dollars and really showcasing how those investments are driving those impacts that we want to you know, want to see. But at the same time, helping us to also achieve these broader, you know, major global goals that we're trying to trying to tackle as well. So we can expect to see some campaign ads featuring, you know, people getting their homes weatherized. Yes. And if you follow Department of Energy on on social media, I highly encourage you to follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter and the like. Not only Skep has a page, um, uh, but also the department and the secretary. And one of the things we've really enjoyed is when the secretary goes out on her visits, um, we've been coordinating these weatherization assistance visits to homes where she'll literally sit down with a homeowner and they will walk through a utility bill together and show pre and post of the impact that the dollars from the weatherization program, of course, that lives in SCEP is doing to reduce cost in that household. And in fact, for weatherization day 
on October 31st of this last year, we held a celebration on the Hill and, and we recognized, you know, a lot of those uh, recipients, you know, over 35,000 homes are getting weatherized every single year from this investment. And because of the plus up on the bipartisan infrastructure law, that's going to be almost a doubling per year. We expect another 500,000 homes through over the next three years to, to be weatherized through that program. So I think that we are starting to get the word out in more creative ways and just encourage you to follow suit and, and to help share the message as those stories come out, as those videos come out, you know, help us get the word out to your networks and, and really showcase, you know, the, the great work that is happening across the country. And particularly how to take advantage of it, right? You got it. Do you have regular interaction with Secretary Granholm or do you kind of just... Uh see her at the press conferences? No, we do. Uh, in fact, every so the $16 billion is broken up into 28 different funding opportunities, different grant programs. And then on top of that, there are technical assistance programs that we're offering to our stakeholders as well. And when we're designing these programs, those program designs have to go up a chain of briefings to the undersecretary and then to the deputy secretary and even over to OMB at the White House to ensure that obviously the way that we've designed the program with, you know, the statutory language that Congress has passed does align. And um, and so we've had the great fortune of being able to uh, meet with Secretary Granholm for all of those programs. Uh, and again, when she's going out on these visits, we're engaging with her. In fact, she was just uh, here in D.C. Uh, the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Assembly was here where all the mayors kind of fly in and they discuss big topics. And of course, climate and clean energy, top priority uh, for the entire mayor network. And Secretary Granholm was a keynote um, to to express all of the funding that's starting to flow to local governments uh, through a grant. In fact, one grant that we didn't even talk about called the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Block Grant, or EECBG. Um, 2,700 grant recipients for that one grant alone. And so, and that's flowing to all 50 states, 1,800 plus local governments, 574 tribal governments, and all the territories. So it is like the widest ranging grant program we have at the department. What does that grant address exactly? It is basically very flexible money for those stakeholders to advance all types of clean energy work. They could use it to uh, hire a consultant to do a clean energy strategy. They could use it to invest in clean energy assets like rooftop solar, EV charging, or electric vehicles. They can even use it to re-grant or, re or provide rebates to consumers to invest in clean energy. So it's, it is the widest, kind of most flexible uh, grant program we have at the department, and it's really to kind of plant the seed for all of those stakeholders to start making the big transition. And so, and how is DC itself doing in terms of the energy transition? DC's got some good progress going. In fact, they have some of the most progressive building codes and laws on the books. One of them is called what's called the Building Performance Standard, which requires existing buildings to actually meet a, a metric, a, an efficiency metric. And if they don't, they're required essentially to make upgrades. Uh, and so the, the DC and New York were the first two cities in the country to pass this. There are now over 30 communities that are looking to, um, you know, replicate that. And we have funding in, in SCEP, a billion dollars 
to support states and local governments who are looking to do this type of policy and others and, and increase their new building codes to the latest codes. Uh, and so we have a tremendous amount of money to help replicate that type of work. But that's one example uh, that, that DC really is leading the charge on. They also have a great retrofit accelerator program for affordable housing, where they're targeting affordable housing complexes, trying to address the energy burden uh, and trying to get those you know, low and moderate income households to, to have a little bit more relief uh, and, and a better quality of life in their, in their units. So I think that there's, and that's just a couple, I, I know there's a lot more, but you know, it's really impressive when you look across this country, even in states and in communities that you wouldn't think are leading the charge, there is leadership happening in every nook and cranny in this country. And it really is about needing to, you know, elevate those stories um, and, and, and really put a spotlight on what is happening because it is, it is fascinating. So in other words, we're sort of, there's an overnight success story about to happen and we don't really know that yet, right? I would agree. I, I definitely agree. You know, like when all of these things are happening in pockets here and pockets there and people don't really know and it's not covered that extensively. And then one day it's like, you look back and you're like, oh my God, it seems like this happened overnight. You know, it's like the overnight success that took 20 years. <laughs> exactly. That is that is a really good way to put it. And I know that the bill and chips and I, I mean, they're all coming at different times and at different maturity levels, but definitely next year, all of this money is already starting to flow. So we're really going to start to see year after year between now and 2031 because of the IRA, this is going to be the name of the game. Um, there's going to be a tremendous economic and job opportunities in this space. And so for those who are interested, definitely keep a lookout and, um, and, and, you know, hopefully you all can join us in making this transition a reality. Tell me what you're most excited about. I mean, you, you're excited about a lot of things. I can hear that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else I can explain my incitement other than this conversation. Um, I will say this year, I'm very excited about actually seeing the impact of the dollars. This past year, I told you, I came July 2022 as employee one. We staffed up. We now have over 140 federal employees. We have over 85 contractors. We have dozens of fellows. So this is over a 200 person shop. Right. And so in the first year, we were focused on not just trying to design these programs and get the money out, but also staff up to have enough resources to do it all. Uh, and so it has been quite the roller coaster to get this thing lifted up. But we're to a point now where we're we're, we're staffed up We're we're now, you know, we have our, our structure and we're beginning to see that the grants that we enabled last year that we unlocked last year have made selections and those selectees are starting to actually do their projects. And so this year we're going to see actual stories of impacts all over the country. And that's what I'm excited about is really elevating those stories and showing the American public that these investments are Im impacting our lives in a positive way uh, and ultimately are, are trying to make you know our future here in America more sustainable. Especially especially for uh, for our children, right? Since we can we can hear hear that you have some children in the background. Certainly for our, our children and those to come, right? I mean, I, I, I'm a proud dad and I, I say, you know, the, when I had my first daughter, this work became much more visceral and a lot more important, uh, even more than I held it. So uh, no doubt about it. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been a very inspiring conversation and I feel like we don't have enough of those these days. So I really deeply appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the time. So that's it for today. Thank you to UVic's Gustafson School of Business for supporting this podcast. And thank you for listening. 
For more about the business of city building and future events, make sure to visit cityage.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and follow CityAge on LinkedIn. See you next time. I didn't plan to say anything like to, to, to know what to say after. How are you? <laughs> you threw me off by asking about me. <laughs> Sorry. Damn, ever the interviewer. Never the interviewee.